0: Good morning, everyone. This is Patty Holstrand, and we are live on KWOD Radio. After about a month hiatus, we are back to doing some regular programming. And uh, today we are talking to Dom Jacques again. Uh I told him he could have a show, the show, His first one here, on, uh, on this fine Saturday here in Arizona. Actually, it's in decent weather today. So, we're talking about space again, and building a new frontier will be based on products and services created on that frontier, not on industrialization based on science experiments. The Frontier Society in space will generate survival products first, as a foundation for industrialized businesses to follow. Donald Jocks is back again today to talk about the homesteading idea and the space. And, of course, his thoughts. Good morning, Don. Are you there?
2: Good morning, Patty.
0: Here you come all I see here.
2: <laughs> Good morning. Talking about one of my most favorite subjects.
0: Well, just one of your
2: favorite subjects, huh? Well, I'm a guy. There's food and sex, the two other favorite subjects, but we'll we'll leave those for another time. Yeah,
0: yeah. Although space and sex is usually a pretty good topic, too.
2: Well, yes, it is. And um, actually, I had uh, considered at one point um, to discuss space and sex, <laughs> or sex and space, or sex in space, or, you know, it could go on and on and on.
0: Sex with space? <laughs>
2: no, no that's just wrong that would like imply like like paradoxes of time and well, space well that would be know. interesting
0: to me yeah
2: you yeah. know yeah. I mean, if I
0: get anything time kind of travel that's, that's serious to me
2: right so. yeah it's excellent well you
0: Frank got it <laughs> so you have a good morning
2: I slept in <laughs> so I guess that could be considered what? a good morning right. for some.
0: sometimes you got to do that you know and uh, I've been I've been told recently some new people coming on board to do some interviews with us, and they listened to our previous in- interviews, and so you know we talk like you know just conversation like, and they find that to be refreshing, and they like the idea, and they, they don't want to be grilled, of course. I don't grill them. I I talk to them as if you know we're friends and we're meeting, we're just talking.
2: Well, yeah, and and the nice thing about that is is that it affords visitors to call in.
0: Yeah, and, and we explore new ideas. Yeah. And people like to learn more.
2: <clears throat> well, and I could, you know, you could never say that I'm an idea person to come up with new things. <laughs> I mean, it's not uh, like I don't uh, do that yeah, very that's, often that's why at you all.
0: Have, you have a thing called Idea Puddle, and, that's, and you stick so much stuff in there that is a pond.
2: Yes. And the nice thing about that is is that I don't necessarily make waves. We just make little ripples on the puddle.
0: You don't make waves?
2: I don't make waves.
0: <laughs> I try very
2: hard not to make waves.
0: Oh, okay. If you say so, I, I think that there's probably a handful of people who say that you make you make big splashes and not waves at all, but <laughs> major splashes. <laughs>
2: So I guess I guess I guess we should actually get to the subject. Just bring need your microphone on. No, just bring up a few notes.
0: Okay.
2: So but anyway, to to our topic. Plenty of time,
0: plenty of time to talk. So I gave you plenty of times. I know what a talker you are. Oh yeah,
2: so yes, I can go on and 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 then take a breath. And I go on and on. Yeah. But, you know, to the topic at hand today, we're talking about, or I'm going to address yet some ideas relative to building a frontier. And, you know, the very first thing we have to talk about if we're going to build a frontier is we have to se- separate ourselves from the great work that NASA has done in opening that frontier. In the past 40, 50 years, NASA has made great strides in fostering the development, the design, the research to build the ships that get us off this planet.
0: I think a lot of people have uh, misunderstood what your message is sometimes. They think that you are a NASA hater.
2: No, I I think that, that NASA has... A very important place and part to play as we move out into the frontier the the problem that I find is it's not so much that I dislike NASA it's that I get frustrated with people who feel that the only way to get to space is through government subsidies government funding and things like this the problem is is that the public first of all hates politicians uh, in, in general and we love, especially recently. Yeah, and and that we love like a great football game, that's done and gone. We love to debate how well the game went. Some people think it was great. Some people think it was lousy. And and politics is is oftentimes another football game. Everybody's tossing the football to everybody else. Unlike in real football, where well, they try and hang on to it, um, and do something with it. And so. Yeah. Politicians are always trying to get rid of that football so that they don't have to answer the hard questions. And that creates uh-huh. problems for NASA in funding, because nobody wants to make a commitment to a long-term program, and that is NASA's Achilles heel. The public sector, the, yeah, the public sector is not going to fund long-term space development. Not going to happen. The, the budgets of NASA are hampered by the very fact that Congress keeps changing their freaking mind.
0: Well, they keep changing over. I mean, you know, if they got four years, you know, under, you know, presidents sometimes go eight years, sometimes they go four years, but even so, if they go four years, it, it keeps changing.
2: Well, sure. Every and, and presidency. Exactly. And and that is, is because each each incoming politician, whether they're returning or coming in on their first term, has goals and things that, and priorities, and they're focused on those priorities. And NASA just, NASA and space transportation and, and the front, the potential frontier of space is not a big priority on most politicians' minds. They're more worried about, you know, uh, automobile factories. They're worried about farming. They're worried about, you know, getting their their votes the next election, which is two to four years away. And so these are these are this right. is just the environment that NASA has been uh, buried into. So the very first thing that I one of the very first things that I talk about, and I really believe is important, is that we need to work away to gain funding from the private sector. And kudos to companies like Bigelow and SpaceX and X Corps and Armadillo and Marston who are working to build. Um, investments in space infrastructure leveraging the technologies that NASA initiated. Bigelow has leveraged the old transhab from years ago that NASA abandoned, and also again because they lost their funding for it. Um, Ar- Ar- uh, Marston and Armadillo focusing on suborbital transits, and you've got, of course, Virgin leveraged Bert Rutan's wonderful. Uh, research and development processes that he's mm-hmm. built up over the years so these are all areas that provide us with a wealth of opportunity and of all countries uh, one of the, the probably the United States is probably the most uh, well prepared especially at this time for the opening of a new frontier when we look at right uh, exactly we are we are primed and ready for new jobs. We're primed and ready for new opportunities for exciting new directions. And I think that space above all other things that have all quite honestly been said and done. You know, there there is there is, somebody was speaking to me a few weeks ago, and they brought up the idea that, well, we have another frontier here on Earth that we could explore, and and, and they're absolutely right, because they were referring to the seas and the oceans, and there is a lot to be developed there. But we face, very similarly, many of the same challenges with ocean research and ocean development as we do with space research and space development. Funding for those types of things is very, very tight. And building commercial enterprises that develop in either frontier is a very challenging deal because these are both long-term investments. It's one thing to develop a housing development for you know startup capital of, of, of a few million dollars to get the first model up and start selling homes because you can do that in the space of a couple of years. But if you're talking something that you're going to put under the water off the coast, you're talking something that's going to take years to develop your first model. And the same is true for space. Are they competing frontiers? Perhaps. But at the same time, I think there may be lessons to be learned from both that will apply in each other. So I don't have never experienced a lot of... uh, strong interest in um, the sea research while it's an exciting place to visit um, I've swum in the ocean I've had the opportunity to um, play in the water and and, and that's fun but there's something almost instinctual in me that says um, our species came from the sea and To a certain degree, it's almost a conflicting point of view because when we talk to many people about going to the moon again, it's been there, done that. And that can be a very stark comparison to a sense of feeling of some people that I've actually spoken with about the oceans. There is that feeling as well. Is that a good thing? I'm not so sure. I think it's just one of the choices that we as as a species face in going forwards and choosing the frontiers we're going to put our money into. And that's why I think that the most important thing to do is to begin funding through the private sector. The private sector has several advantages. One of which is diversity that can be accomplished through the private sector that cannot be accomplished through the public sector. The level of challenges the guidelines that are already in place the massive amount of challenges that you face in the public sector of trying to get a project started through either NASA or even for that matter any one of the nonprofit space advocacy groups they all have their stated mission they have charters they have uh, some of them have shareholders who expect a certain mission to be followed. And so you have this momentum both in the public and the nonprofit sector that requires all projects to follow down this particular path.
0: Well, that's an interesting uh, thought I was that came to my mind and has come to my mind before. Do you think that uh, we made a, a big push into space when, Uh, our government was behind the the project. Do you think that being in the private sector with their meetings and and everybody having to be on the same plate, do you think that that is going to make it even longer for us to actually make another big surge out in the space again?
2: I think we're seeing the political climate change again so that the United States may indeed make another big push very soon. However, there are consequences to such a push from the government sector. To answer your question, do I really think there's going to be another push? I think there will be. Do I think it's a good thing? No, I don't. A government push in almost every era of this country's history has been based on competition with a foreign power. It has been through the threat of war or through threat of economic challenges by other countries moving into domains that we had dominated. And space is the classic example. It was a space race and there. In the in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, when that occurred, we were challenged by Russia. And a lot of that was militarily based. It was the assumption we better get up there or they're going to beat us to it, not only from the standpoint of the prestige, but also from, well, the moon and, and, and orbit both represent platforms for military... Um, Oversight for military reconnaissance, for for science and research that is just immense for the breadth of coverage that it makes over the the earth where we live. I see that with the increase in India's programs, China's mm-hmm. program, Japan has been increasing activity in its program. Uh, you have North Korea making beginning steps into a space program, which is scary, which is scary for what they might <laughs> they might do. Um, China's uh, Shenzhou program is very, very aggressive. They're, they're hoping to put up a space station within the next year or two. They're, in fact, I think they just either just did launch or are about to launch the first segment of their space station. I think it's actually up there. Um, and they're hoping to put a uh, Taikonot in the next uh, year, couple of years. So we're talking them coming up behind us very quickly. There are murmurings in, in the space community that, that this could be a bad thing because they're catching up to us quick. And if we look at math and science and education and and society, we see other nations coming up behind us very quickly, uh, some of them passing us according to the statistics that one would be faced with these days. So, But when it comes to looking at a frontier, the wonderful thing that we can look back on in our history is is that Americans typically while we're not the only participants in a frontier our society is one who pushes frontiers and mass okay. we have and to a certain degree we have an arrogance about us in america that yeah. says that, that is that is a lot like the the eminent domain that it is our place it is our not duty but our manifest destiny that's the word i was looking for to push the frontiers. And whether that's true or not, I, I I don't think that that there's a sense of truth to it, but I think that there is this attitude that it is our manifest destiny to open these frontiers. You know, even though we've had uh, Madame Curie from France, who opened up many things in, in chemistry and, and nuclear science, you have Jacques Cousteau from, from France, we had people from Britain and, and Italy who opened up great frontiers for us. The... The thing is, is that Americans have this attitude in general that, that we can do this. And you don't find that um, as abundantly, arrogantly obvious in other societies. So having said all of that, I think that if we can take advantage
0: you said a lot there.
2: of these attributes that we in America have the capacity to using private enterprise to develop the frontier of space like no one else. Other nations are challenged by the very things that make them attractive. Their traditions, their societies that have ways of behavior that are wonderful things to have and I'll tell you, there's been many times I miss traditions that we developed in our country or we brought over from the old country and I miss many of those but I think that a frontier and the frontier mentality that develops as you face the challenges of this new environment, whether it be the deserts of of Arizona the, the plains of the Midwest or for that matter the varying environments that they found in Australia as that country grew or the vagaries of crossing the, the waters to get to America in the first place. There are challenges that are faced in every generation toward these frontiers. And I think the private enterprise, as is being evidenced by, to a certain degree, some would say the headlong rush of SpaceX, it, it, it almost to many seems like a headlong rush. And there are concerns about safety. There are concerns that uh, on both sides of the fence that, well, they're taking too long. They should've been up there by now. And and uh, there are there are young people who wonder, well, why aren't we there already? I mean, we went to the moon in '69. Why didn't we stay there? And <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: so. Yeah, I nice in that in that capacity. Well, I thought we were already there.
2: Yeah, and yet
0: yeah, been on Disney for forever. <laughs>
2: And, of course, we've had Star Wars. We've had Star Trek. Three, four generations of Star Trek yeah. have come and gone.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, four or yeah. five, I stand corrected. And,
0: and all of them are wondering why we weren't already out there, even though technology has made it, you know, obviously has utilized some of the things that came through Star Trek.
2: Well, the flip phone is the most classic example of yeah. a communicator that gives you instantaneous access to anybody on the planet.
0: Right, and the it's, tablet now.
2: And now the tablet... And so, but you know, see, now see, here's the thing, just as an aside here. I'll tell you what I'm waiting for. I want a lightsaber. I (laughs) want a lightsaber. I love the idea. And and can you imagine the other applications? And here's something we didn't think about when thinking about Star Wars. Imagine being able to use a light knife in the kitchen. (laughs) Oh, would that not be just so cool? Or here, here you go, a butcher. Imagine being able to butcher a cow, okay. with a lightsaber, oh, and keep that's... all those bloody juices inside oh. that meat.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean,
2: just imagine the the ability okay. to cook those meats with all that extra okay. juice in there.
0: this is supposed to be like <laughs> no blood
2: involved here. <laughs> oh, now, uh, see, I, I want well, a light knife for a lightsaber. Did you light tell saber. me something
0: uh, the other day about somebody making a, uh, a first step towards a holodeck?
2: Yes, I did. Um, scientists at one... I know, oh, this is kind of like
0: that. off our beaten track. Oh. You know, that's what it's cool about.
2: Yes, they, they, they blended a series of projectors in real time with cameras in real time. And they had it fill an entire room. And the, the image that I had seen uh, was... They they actually had filmed some videos of the interior of the room of this
1: holodeck. Yeah
2: and added that the, the projectors were hitting everywhere the floors, the ceilings, the walls and so you could you could for in one moment be standing in your living room and in the next moment you're in the middle of the jungle and yeah. every wall, every surface is, of the room yeah. has this projection upon it and so it's it's it is a big step right now for immersive uh entertainment
0: It reminds me of back in the 70s, I believe it was, when when we used to go to these, those light shows, what they call it, they were laser light shows where we sat in beanbag chairs. This is for all the oldies and and goodies that are out there. You guys know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The beanbag chairs. You'd be in a big room and they'd have the laser light show above us you lay on the, the bean beanbag chairs on the floor and look up at the at ceiling, and enjoy the show. No, I'm sorry, but tell me the forty and fifty year olds, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
2: I, I remember those beanbags, um, and even today, kids love them. They're they're a very comfortable chair, as it were. And you know that that, that gives me an idea that I should add into the book I'm preparing. You know, furniture for the moon or furniture for the Mars ought to be made out of beanbag chairs. What a great in- export fruit to the moon colonies or Mars colonies. Wouldn't that be awesome? I you wouldn't know. have Where to carry wood. You wouldn't have to build furniture. Just carry bags that say maybe they're maybe they're full of water when they ship them, and then when you get there, you put the water into your water bladders and tanks, and then you fill the bags these these bags with beans, and there's your food storage and your chair all at the same time. There's a cool idea. Reusability. Yeah, so,
0: okay, well, only question is, you know how hard it was to get in uh, that chair sometimes? Well, as a kid, you know, you didn't have pro- well, as trouble. as a kid, but, yeah, it
2: was easy. You just roll I, right over and off onto the floor, I, and that was fun. I remember
0: a took my brother and I, uh, both of us, to pull my dad out of one of those chairs on the floor because he's like Well, you know, big folks
2: like us, adults, always have trouble with stuff like that <laughs> because we forget all you got to do is, Play like you just got shot and roll over.
0: Roll over and get on your on your knees. Well, my dad had bad knees, so we had to actually pull him up off his off his beanbag chair.
2: I can remember some people who who lacked imagination; they had to be helped out of those chairs. Uh, but you know that's that's an important thing. But I'm thinking
0: um, now, and, and, and gravity issue.
2: Well, that's you, not a problem on the moon.
0: Oh, you just we just let go of your restraint and just kind of go back up and just.
2: No, 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 no. Because keep in mind, when you're on the moon, if so let's let's say you weigh 200 pounds on Earth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. On the
2: moon, your weight is one-sixth of that or roughly uh, 90, 60... Well, so if you weigh 200
0: pounds degrees.
2: on the moon, I can't. 80, can. 80 pounds? 80
0: pounds, maybe, yeah. Man, I haven't weighed that since I was like
2: in sixth grade.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kind of 80 pounds, that's, that's not much
2: weight. Lifting no. that out of a bean bang chair on the moon ought to be really No,
0: easy. one yank and you'd be flying up on the ceiling part of the show. Well, that
2: depends on whether you've got a helper <laughs> shelf next to you and you yank on the helper shelf and it propels you. Uh, I, I was writing a book. That'd be like where we're I have a science fiction book in, in, in the works and there is a scene in which um, one of the goals that I wanted to look at was in dealing with the frontier on a frontier is usually led by men i mean it just it just happens that way um so women even, have women greater are sense of them, you know. No. Oh yeah. Not at all. It's not that are the, the one we're them. the
0: ones uh yanking the guy out of the chair. Oh, okay. Oh
2: okay, okay, okay. Behind them as in supporting them. The supporting them. Oh, okay. Supporting
0: them getting him out of the chair, however you want to look
2: uh, at it. My us. my thoughts were that women are behind men in that they're left behind.
0: No, no. never left
2: behind. Right. Okay. Well here here was the thought that I was I was running across. I was trying to imagine just some of the things that Frontier miners as an example, on the surface of the moon, might do for entertainment. And I got to thinking, okay, well, you've got low gravity, uh, you've got a bar situation, and in any bar situation on a frontier, the guys are going to compete at things that seem to us here on Earth in civilization think are absolutely, totally, ludicrously idiotic. And so I put myself in that frame of Ryan mind, and I came up with one thing that that people might do across the bar room on the surface of the moon, and that's how many somersaults can you do from one wall to the <laughs> other, and land on your feet on the other wall.
0: Yeah, that—that's yes. I, I was thinking now you yank that guy, and he's up in—he's part of the show now. <laughs> Okay, so he's doing the somersaults. I know we're totally getting off the subject, but this is kind of fun. Uh, you know, doing the somersaults. So you say how many can you somersaults do can he do
2: in the air, in across, the air the room, across the room before he hits the other wall and goes splat? Right.
0: Well, like a, <laughs> on, uh, the velocity
2: of his. Well, his sure. Strength,
0: okay? Which is always. Hey, no, 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 no! Wait a enough. minute. This
2: has nothing to do with math and science. Just leave it alone. This is no, entertainment. we got
0: math. We got velocity.
2: No, 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 You no, don't have velocity no, of no. it, okay. it, it depends on how many drinks you've had, which determines how many <laughs> somersaults you can make, without throwing up midair across yeah. the room.
0: Yeah. Because
2: that costs well, you points actually, in the competition.
0: Well, yeah, if you throw up in your, in your suit, <laughs> it, is, it costs you points.
2: And if you throw up on the moon, the projectile nature of that is oh. going to expel it yeah. far further than it would normally.
0: You yeah, have the blood to throw up. You know, what is up with
2: you? Know? <laughs> Number one, I haven't had my breakfast, and number Ow. two, I'm in a really crazy mood here this well, morning. So good. let's let's get back onto the topic at hand. Um, <laughs> building a new frontier based on products and services was part of what I said in the description, and to get to that, um, I I presume that a frontier is based on what products and services are going to be there, especially when you're in a survival environment. And you asked at the very beginning um, some questions relative to the difference between public and private sector. In public sector, the general uh, impetus of any exploration is going to be science and knowledge, in which case your secondary purpose is to protect those that go there in all possible scenarios. Now, those two things, while they do go hand in hand, because you want to make sure that your researchers are safe and they're protected, you follow good protocols so that your research isn't tainted by mistakes, at the same time, this creates a whole new series of levels of expense that doesn't apply if you're trying to produce products and services in a frontier environment, in the sense that if you're private sector, your goal is to make a profit. First and foremost. And so, to make a product, profit, you've got to have products and services that are going to be sellable so that you can make money. If we look at the history of the United States and the West, where people moved west um, oftentimes to make a profit, you had the railroad. Well, they were going to transport goods and services to make that profit. And for every mile they achieved, they made a profit ultimately. Uh, some of it was government funded, but even so, that company made a profit off the money the government paid them to build that railroad. Yeah, and so that profit motive is perhaps the single most potentially valuable and long-term um, sustainable than is scientific research, because scientific research is dependent upon the whims of the public. That is. Funding it. And if the public has expectations of being able to go there someday, scientific research is not going to deliver that. Not going to happen. Um, and so we come back to this aspect of a frontier society. What products, what services could a frontier society offer our civilized world? Because we already know there's no aborigines with, with cute little baubles on the surface of the moon that we can trade with for trinkets and get and then ship these things at home. Just doesn't exist. And so far as we know so far, um, there are no aboriginal cultures on the surface of Mars with which we can trade and bring baubles home and charge exorbitant prices to make huge profits. So those are not directions that we can take private sector. However private sector in today's world offers a wonderful potential in a tourism Uh uh, as things and there are many companies that are exploring those avenues Um, the novelty of going to space and doing all of the things I mean there's I am sure that within uh, a few years after getting the first private space station up there we're going to have the occurrence of a website that probably talks about the 62 mile high club and we know what the original Mile High Club, which went to five miles.
0: Well, now we're getting you know, back on Sex and Space again.
2: Sex and Space. And oh. and, and it always, it does indeed, it sells. Um, but if you're going to have Sex and Space, you've got to be able to survive long enough to share the story. And so we end up with the emphasis on a frontier lifestyle to actually get there and establish the infrastructure that's going to make it possible for tourists to come and arrive. And if that's gonna happen, there's a whole infrastructure that needs to be built, and yet that infrastructure, like the railroad, has to one step at a time, and each step needs to be able to support itself as we move forward. So let's let's take the comparison of the railroad as an example. Okay. As the railroads moved west, you had to carry your your you generally had to carry a lot of things with you that you might not normally think about. Number one, there is obviously the hammers to pound the nails into
0: Pickaxe. the wood.
2: You had to have shovels, you had to have axes, mm-hmm. because they didn't really carry a steam shovel with them to dig the small trenches they needed to lay the track.
0: They didn't have those then. They had no, they manual labor. They
2: had manual labor and granted they had lots of it. Yeah. And so let's 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 kind of make a list okay. here. Immigrants, yes. And not only that, but you had immigrant labor. Now, in those days, you still also had, to a certain degree, slave labor. Yeah. Exactly. So, but even with slave labor, you've got to make a profit, which means you've got to keep your food, your clothing, and your housing expenses down. Slaves, you still got to food, clothe, and feed them. You've yeah. got to feed, clothe, yeah. and and shelter them. Otherwise, they don't survive long enough to do any work.
0: Off it attend a little bit, Hell on Wheels is a brand new uh, series that. that is from that time period.
2: And that's what prompted my, my thoughts yeah. by using the railroad as an example.
0: And you never really thought about the details details before on how how you make that work.
2: Oh not to mention, take this for an example. The gentleman, uh what is his name? He was in Star Trek, Colmeanie plays the head of the railroad company yeah, who's doing guy. this. And huh. you look at the map and the map's got this wavy line for the railroad. Yeah. And he's telling right. the guy the guy says, Well why don't you make it a straight line and you'll make better progress and the guy says, No, the government is paying me by the mile. Right. That right. means the more miles I lay, the more money I get paid. And Todd talk,
0: talk about greed.
2: Well it's, it's greed. greed, it's profiteering. I
0: mean, you but know, because the the faster point from from point A to point B is usually a straight line.
2: And But when have you ever seen a government process? Be it a politician, <laughs> be it the thousand dollar hammers, be it our trip into space oh, through God. NASA, when has it ever taken a straight line?
0: I, I don't know, and that's just it. <laughs> and this is why. See this explains. This is why it was I thought the writing was done really well. They had uh makeshift tents with cots or sometimes sure. people slept straight on the floor or on the ground um and, and one that of their biggest time. expenses
2: and here's something to think about one of their single biggest expenses was blankets
0: yeah
2: i mean you you couldn't wear enough coats <laughs> to to survive those winters at nights and so you had to have blankets and and of course you know when we look back at those people we realize they were a hardier lot than we are apparently i mean you're talking sleeping in in town, of 20 and 30 degrees uh regularly not just once in a while as as we suffer through in in our winters with our central heat and air. Well, um, we're
0: warm here in Arizona. Uh, yeah, we, we guess 30 degrees
2: and I would venture and, and and here's here's another anachronism with with Americans. We we have this this attitude of manifest destiny. Huh. And this arrogance, and yet at the same time, we complain if the temperature doesn't remain within the range of seventy two to seventy eight degrees. I mean you're right we to a large degree we're wimps
0: yeah.
2: and and so forth so uh, th- there's there's dichotomy there, but at the same time huh. as as a species, we need to understand, and as a society that everything comes at a cost um Government has its place, and yet we we have to be willing to pay the price in the New Frontier. That's true. And that price is not going to be just in dollars, but it's going to be in lives. And this is probably uh, a linchpin that I talk about on my website that that really emphasizes that if we're going to really make progress, we have to accept that there is a middle ground that we need to be willing to take that we need to make efforts to keep our astronauts safe yeah and but not so much to bring them back home we want these astronauts to be frontiersmen to go to the moon to go to Mars to go to the asteroids over time and to be able to homestead and live there successfully, but not only to live there, but to be able to generate products and services that can be sold within the space arena to perpetuate that economic arena. The sad part is that so many people assume that if we go to space, the products and services will benefit the people at home. And I was looking at yeah. the moon and trying to understand what could the moon produce that would not be a 100 to a 1,000 times cheaper if produced on Earth. There is very little that we would want to bring home from the moon. I mean, moon rocks for a while, just like tourism for a while, will be, will be a great market. But moon rocks alone... I mean, we could break up the entire moon and bring it to Earth in pieces, and it still wouldn't last long enough to generate enough income to support space. I
0: don't think that the novelty of the moon is enough for people to want to buy these pieces.
2: Not in mass, no. Not anymore. No. Uh, Uh, There was a time when that would have been true, but even then, markets change, and we have to understand that as we make this push out into space. Um, we, we talked a little bit about mar-
0: merchandising before, mm-hmm. and I think that that uh, some of the vehicles that they're going to put together and, and make in order to be able to do what they need to do and, and on the moon when they get this, uh, their habitats up. is And, and even a habitat, a habitat, you think about it, if if it's designed in such a way to make it so that way kids can enjoy a habitat
2: type of uh uh, well there 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 toys, are things so right but but there is there is a phase that while I agree with you on the idea of merchandising and so forth, there is a phase that we have to go through in order to get to the moon to mars and and beyond, and that is what I call mission zero yeah. throughout NASA's history we've been working on mission numbered uh targets that take astronauts in fully formed ships that are mission purposed to achieve uh, a specific task or group of tasks. Apollo went to the moon to do research to find out about the area nearby the landing site, mostly geological studies, some, some astronomical studies. But were, the missions were very, very direct. They, they spent years training for as many contingencies and to narrow the focus of the astronauts as they worked to the specific tasks appropriate for the mission and the knowledge they were attempting to gain. When we go and in, move into a frontier environment and in a frontier mentality, we no, no longer have the luxury to be able to anticipate uh, very many of the potential scenarios we're going to run up against. Yeah. And this is the flaw that many people make in looking at space as a target, as a frontier. They assume that we can use the NASA um, uh, process to get there and stay there and produce products, and that just is not going to work. Um, let, let, let me give I, you an example. I,
0: what I don't understand is it's almost an arrogance that people think that, well, they're going to go space in order to make us money. What, what, what's up with that? I mean, what? why isn't it about survival?
2: Well, our society has developed to such a point where we're so so consumer-oriented. And that's what bites us in the butt every time we talk about space. We're looking for consumer products that we can produce on or near the moon or in low-Earth orbit that can uh, extend our bottom line and increase our stock value. And so the idea of trying to, to actually develop things over time Because look at the investment cycle that we face today. Everybody talks about the markets today, and these markets around the world are extremely volatile because of a lack of consumer confidence, because of a lack of, of investor confidence. Yeah. And one minute they think, oh, great, the, 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 the European Union is going to set up this treaty and everybody's going to agree and they're going to have a, uh, a game plan on how to handle their debt. And the next day we hear that, well, Britain is out and these other countries are having issues and and it's not the, the cure-all we were hoping for and the market takes a dive again. Yeah. And so the, the problem comes in that on one side of our earthbound society – You have investors who are now number in the the billions who are investing without enough knowledge to appreciate that the stock market is based on a principle of investing in something for a period of time. Not just till the stock drops.
1: Right, exactly.
2: And this is the fallacy that so many investors make. And it causes many companies to operate their business on the idea, of, well our stock price is down. Oh, now it's up. Oh, now it's down again. We gotta do something. Oh my God, it's panic time. Because your stock price well your stock price doesn't generate whether you are doing business. The consumers who buy your products generate how much business you do. There are companies out there who have had a stock price that has vacillated wildly and yet the businesses have done very well over the years.
1: Yeah.
2: Perhaps they're not doing double-digit or triple-digit growth as many web companies did for, you know, the 90s and and into the 2000s. But and those businesses they collapsed, many of them, um, whether for economic reasons or whether through um, other business reasons. Uh, Napster is a classic example of this. The society wasn't ready, and nor were the economic uh, and 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 business entities ready for a really low-cost service like Napster where you can get music. But nowadays, we've achieved what Napster tried to do back then. Yeah. You know, music costs are now down to in places you can get music for free. Yeah. And yet, the company wow, of Napster being first that. to market, yeah, and the, and the company of Napster being first to market, bit the bullet, ended up dying very recently, finally closed its doors permanently. And so, this is this is a good example of of what SpaceX actually faces in being to market. If they do indeed, which I, I truly believe they will, achieve um orbital transport of of people to the ISS on a regular schedule basis, that is going to be a wonderful feat to achieve. And I have no doubt that they will, um but they they will suffer from first to market uh, itis, as I call it, the aspect that you have all of these people, and the United States suffers from this all the time, we are first to market in a lot of areas, and yet the others come up behind us with a cheaper way to do what we did the first time. And this will happen, and it's this is how the, the frontier space will be opened. But it will be done in, in a step-by-step manner in that regard. But I'm I'm digressing again. So, so the idea that we can Build a frontier of space. Being able to protect our our frontier people for all sorts of eventualities is a fallacy. It's not going to happen. Right. We have to we have to completely redirect the um, homestead corps, the, the astronaut corps, that's going to become our homesteaders from these three year long training sessions that teach you exactly how to do each step you're going to run into to a different way yeah. that says we're gonna teach you how to garden. We're gonna teach you how to handle uh your basic emergency situations, which is a hole in your habitat or a micrometeorite thing in your spacesuit, what are you gonna do? Or something A through your suit and Exactly. And and here's that that's actually a very good example. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because if if you're out and you're mining mm-hmm. and in fact in my book Transit, there's a there's a chapter where it talks about the main character's mentor who <laughs> doesn't sneeze in his spacesuit but he does um, he is, he, is yeah, so he, him, but... he He struggles in, a, in an accident where they they're drilling into this rock face and they're using a much smaller drill for some fine tuning and the mentor sets the drill up on the scaffolding and then he stumbles in his spacesuit and falls against the scaffolding and the drill comes down and punctures his suit yeah. and embeds itself in his shoulder. Well, now you're, you're you're met with a a very common type of accident that could happen, yeah. especially in the low gravity of the moon with the bulky spacesuits we'd have to deal with.
0: Yeah. So here's yeah.
2: here's the scenario you're faced with this.
0: Although do I thought they're reducing the bulkiness of the spacesuits. We would
2: hope they do, and they're working to that end. But the layers that are necessary to protect you from both radiation and yeah. micrometeorites and these are all issues. But just let's focus on the yeah. on the accident for a moment. If we're dealing with a punctured spacesuit right. and you have a, a an object which has embedded itself in your shoulder, mm-hmm. here are the problems you face. If you pull the drill out now not only is he going to bleed to death inside his suit, but he's going to lose all his air in a matter of of seconds
0: yeah
2: if you leave the um
0: you know, vacuum issue. if you leave it
2: in the suit mm-hmm. um, you're still going to bleed out. And you've got the pain issue of this object sitting punctured through your skin and oh your shoulder.
0: Oh
2: my. Um so so what do you do in a situation like that? Well
0: Well you're hoping other people are around you're hoping here. other people around that can
2: get <laughs> you into the habitat quickly, but if if you're if you're a mile right. away wow. from the habitat, you're you're a goner. And this comes yeah. this this place to what I'm talking about, a frontier attitude. There are things you cannot recover from. Right. Does that mean we shouldn't go? No. Well,
0: why does it have to be a, a 100% mortality rate here? I mean, there's no re, there's no way that anyone can promise you that you're going to live, even if you could, you're people who hurt themselves and die in their own houses from accidents because there's nobody around to help them.
2: True, but here's the, the thing to consider. Here. We've had several generations of kids grow up playing video games with no consequences to their choices in the game. Yes, your character gets blown up. But in the next incident, yeah, the he instance comes back, you get more, you get more lives. Yeah. Uh, and, and with cheat codes, you can become invulnerable. And this creates a perspective of the life around us that is wholly out of, out of sync with real life. Yeah. Now, do I think that all these gaming kids go out into the world thinking they're invulnerable? No. But there I, are I assumptions. of a
0: reality. There's a sense of, of, of twisted reality. Of, of
2: reality. reality here well, that creates these problems. And. And many, most of these kids from the first and second generation games are adults, and while they live and work in the real world, they still have some of these latent assumptions that still color their decisions or well, their perceptions of what space has to offer or what the oceans have to if offer. That,
0: if, not, if that wasn't true, then like my son thinking that, well, why aren't we already in space? Aren't we already on the moon?
2: Yeah,
0: and why don't we have a space? you know, station right on space the moon. station That's,
2: or space taxis or yeah, they, all of the things they, to get us there. They
0: because it's on Disney and because we've been in space for so long that we should already have these things. So that is a sense of, of displacement, says baby. It things. is. Because they but think, it well, also, they've seen it for this long, we should have already had
2: it. Right. But more insidiously, take your very set of logic one more step. Okay. What assumptions does it carry forward? About what we expect space to be like. Yeah. This this thing of everybody can get a spacesuit that fits them well, which mm-hmm. is absolutely ridiculous right, right now.
0: Right. And that's what I And mean, yeah,
2: yeah. spacesuits don't fit everybody right now. They they're they're multi-million dollar efforts that take uh, a year or more to build just one.
0: Yeah, and then that's the thing is people don't have understanding of how much money it takes to actually actually develop these things.
2: Well, but more importantly, they didn't understand how much time it takes many of these things well, to get Well, time, done. money, things, yada, yada. Well, no, not yada, <laughs> yada. This is the whole problem.
0: It, it, if you're building it a
2: frontier, yeah. yes, it takes money, but it takes people recognizing the real dangers that we face. And I'm, and I'm not meaning to play down the discussions that I hear all the time about the vacuum of space and the radiation and the micrometeorites and the particles and the solar wind and all of these things that play into the dangers that we will face in the environment of space. But here's the rub. So often we forget the cost not only in dollars, but in time that the infrastructure that NASA and ESA and the Indian Space Agency have built to work so hard to protect the investments so that they reach their destination. And what I'm trying to suggest is that a frontier attitude, and let's look at what a frontier meant in, say, the American West in the mid-1800s, where these people grabbed a wagon, Mm. Sometimes with only two wheels, and they had to pull it themselves, and they had to get an ox or a horse to yeah. pull this thing. Yeah. Or for that matter, there were hand carts that went out with goats pulling them, for, uh, for goodness sakes. Well, so these are people who couldn't afford a, an ox or a horse to pull their wagon, and instead of four wheels, they only had two, so they could only carry a quarter of what the the, right. the Conestogas right. could, and so we have many degrees.
0: You can't see a, goat, a goat on a on a book board. I mean, it's just not going to happen.
2: No, not going <laughs> to happen. The goat is just going to look at that bookboard. and <laughs> say, "Ain't yesterday. no way in hell."
0: <laughs> I'm going to sit
2: down here, and you can milk me till I'm dry before I I pull that thing.
1: Exactly, and
2: and so, and so what I'm trying to get at is is that there is a minimum standard that we can look towards right. to carrying people to space. And while SpaceX is is gradually, I think SpaceX is, is on the verge of achieving that at a, at a minimum standard that can be financially feasible. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting we send everybody up in a tin can thin rocket ship by any stretch of the imagination. There are some minimum standards that need to be met and there were with with the yearly Conestoga wagons and the hand cart. They had to be structurally sound so that they could traverse 3,000 miles to get to California from from New York. And the rocket ships that we send up need to have a certain minimum standard to get people safely to their destination of either low orbit, uh, suborbit, low orbit, or further out enough to to reach the moon and, and ultimately to Mars. But I also think that there was one thing that the westward movement did is that they didn't do it in one big, long push. There were waypoints along the way. And as we see shaping up in the commercial space business, there is the idea of the first waypoint is achieving suborbital, returnable, reusable flight hardware. Get people to suborbit on a tourist way, which to many, in many degrees was how the movement west began. You had people going from Philadelphia and going out to the frontier, which was 10, 20 miles out, which was a day's journey in those days. If you were lucky, you'd go 20 miles, and you'd spend a day or two, and you'd come back. And you come back to your home with your carriage in the in the carriage house out back, and your horses that had to be taken care of. So you didn't spend long vacations unless you had a staff to take care of the home. And so we look at, at these kinds of things, the, the the relative expenses of space tourism today compared to frontier tourism. Of the 1830s and 40s um, is is very similar. So there are many people who, who have tried to say that all the, oh, the expense is too high and there aren't enough people to support the market. And and I would counter by saying there probably is, at least for a while, because the tourism market will simply evolve in the same way that it has evolved on Earth. You'll start with suborbit, then you'll expand into orbital. Tourism then you'll expand into orbital cruises where you're going from one two or three different space stations and getting different views of the moon Earth and Mars
0: That'd be cool.
2: and then you'll 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 migrate to cruises that go to the moon and back, and the moon will become the new Caribbean <laughs> and Mars will become the new Alaskan cruise and you know these are simply stepping stones to get people there. But, again, I'm going to come back again, round robin, to the very first point, and that is all these things are mission numbered. They're mission 10, mission 20, mission 120.
0: So the things are far future.
2: Those are far future. We're talking 20, 100 years before we get cruises uh, to Mars and back. I mean, we're, we're, or, see,
0: we're forgetting. Or because of the sheer amount of time and sheer amount of money. And, because
2: of the economy that doesn't exist yet right. to support a cruise to right. Mars. Okay, You've got to have
0: so, got to be up there first. You we we come
2: there. back from from the cruises to Mars and back to settling Mars, and then we come back to cruises to the Moon and back to, to settling the Moon and establishing an economic frontier. If you're going to have a cruise to the Moon, you you need to have facilities there that can support tourists for a day or two as they we, turn we around. we've got to have back.
0: Gilligan's Island before we can have a three-hour Absolutely. cruise.
2: Absolutely, and Gilligan's Island is is is, is while humorous. It is a great way to think
0: about, um, think yeah, about
2: it. what I call the mission zero scenario.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, uh, I think you were talking about taking a break here in a few minutes.
0: We have two hours.
2: But right, but don't yeah. you want to take a break midpoint yeah. and yeah.
0: Yeah, do let's things? Put some music on them and, and talk about the different. Yeah, let's let's take out.
2: a break because I need to get something to drink.
0: <laughs> All yeah. right. Okay.
2: And we'll come back and talk about Mission Zero.
0: Okay. So with that, I'm going to um, – <laughs> she suddenly jumped on me like that. Uh, that sounds great. We're going to take a, uh, about a three-minute break here, and we will be right back. This is KWAB Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and this is Saturday morning. So at least it is in Arizona. we
2: we'll be right
0: back.
1: in case anybody forgot
0: This is Patty Holstrand and this is K Radio we're on live again. And I want to talk briefly about the upcoming shows that we have here, K Radio. And on Tuesday, this is coming Tuesday, December thirteenth, at five thirty PM Arizona time. See four thirty for those in California. And that's exactly where our authors are from. We had talked to them briefly. Well, I was doing a different show uh, back in October for their book, Aloha, which uh, created quite a stir because uh, they were discussing as a political book, political fiction book about uh, what we should do as uh, in our time here to get out of debt. And so they had come up with the thought of selling Hawaii to China and thus getting us out of our debt. So that's what triggered that first book, Aloha, into the second book, which is Adios. And that book, that Adios book creates new political fiction fans. The saga continues after selling Hawaii to the Chinese to pay off the national debt. What will President Bruce Gavin do next? So that's book two. Uh, we'll be talking to the authors on this upcoming, this upcoming Tuesday. And obviously you need to double check on your time if you're in East Coast or Pacific time, which is two hours behind Arizona, which would be 7.30 their time to 5.30 Arizona time. Um, also we have coming up would be Daryl uh, Dawson. He is he's a horror writer and he's one of my son's favorite authors right now. And he's got some extra stories that he has put together for a second, smaller book. And he will be discussing that with us on January 2nd. And that will also be a 5.30 Arizona time. And since he lives here in Arizona, uh, you have to look at your time's Obviously, Pacific Time again is one hour uh, in front of us, and everyone else is behind. So, you gotta look at your times. So I will be putting that show up uh, within the next week. So, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of good, great things, and a lot of good shows coming up. We've got some local authors who are coming to talk to us, and we've got some people from back east and some brand new authors. Uh, who are coming on board here at AZ Publishing Services. We've got some poets. We've got several poetry books. We've got Eloquently Yours from Ellie Sion. She's from Canada. She will be speaking with us soon. And also, uh, Rob, I can't say his last name because he won't let me. (laughs) Uh, He's on his workbook with us, and his book, Following in the Footsteps of God, It's his inspirational insights uh, series, and that's book four in his his, uh, arsenal. And he doesn't like to, uh, for everybody to know who he is so much, because it's it's about the books, it's not about him. So with that, he will also be speaking to us uh, within the next few weeks, uh, especially around a new year when we can start thinking about changes in our life. And he will be writing some articles for us for the blog, uh, that's AZ Publishing Services Blog. Uh, and that's a lot of great stuff coming up. And of course, we got a new year. We got 2012, which is something we can go back to Dom and talk a little about. And we're talking about uh, 2012 being the great change. Do you think that the space program will be part of that?
2: Absolutely, um, I I do believe that it's just one aspect of what we could call a, a great change. But the 2012 changes, I mean, in, in the research that I've looked at for another book I'm writing, fiction, of course, is that 2012 represents a change in in things that we have assumed up to this part, the Mayan calendar runs on 5,200 years. The, 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 um, the great round, I forget what it's called, uh, runs on a 5,200-year cycle. And to give some perspective here, the last time that this 5,200-year cycle came about was back in 3114 B.C., give or take a couple of years, because we still have some doubts about the calculations for the calendar, but... If you go back to the ballpark period of 5,200 years ago, and you look at the last time that these uh, cycles came round, we see in the in the historical timeline that civilization was just getting started. That um, and, and and not just in any particular area like Mesopotamia and so forth, but there were things going on everywhere on the planet there were there were climate aspects that were that were making changes at that time um there were astronomical events that were happening at the time that were while not necessarily unusual in the grand scheme of things the conjunction of all of these things at that particular point relative to our planet was a, a big thing at that time uh, in regards as we look back and look at just what was going on um You had the the, the rising seas at that time were coming up as as we came out of an ice age. You had um, the gathering together of peoples. It was only in the range of 2500 BC that the two kingdoms of Egypt came together under one rule. So you're only talking less than 500 years from the time of 3114. And imagine what would have to happen for to go from the beginnings of civilization around the 3114 time frame to get to the point where you have one of the greatest civilizations in our history comes under one single rule and unites two separate kingdoms the wars the 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 changes in society that have to occur for that to actually be successful are huge not to mention the potential of all the other you know smaller clannish type uh, areas that happen Around Egypt, for that to be able to take place. Um, so there's there's much to be said of uh, of the great change in 2012, and we are seeing signs of of great change now. So we're, what you're we're saying seeing...
0: is that basically, that throughout our history, there have been several great changes.
2: Oh, I believe I be yeah, absolutely. Through through Earth's entire history, there are cycles. And science shows us from even the micro level in that we as individuals have biorhythmic cycles. We have monthly and and daily cycles that our bodies go through that we experience um, and that those cycles color our experience and our view of the world around us. In the same vein, if you look at communities, they go through cycles, um, particularly in real estate. Where you'll have one part of a city might be just the depths of the other sides of the railroad tracks, and nobody wants to go there because that's where the, the poorest of the poor live. And yet, you can go back 15 years later, and that, that area of town might be, be booming.
0: Renewal. Well, it'd be renewal.
2: It would, there would be a renewal cycle that occurs. And and most neighborhoods go through this periodic decline and then rise and renewal yeah. and decline and rise and renewal Um, There are are urban planners who depend on those cycles to continue forward in time. Uh, It's not an exact science because there are so many factors in complex systems like this that you cannot... Accurately predict what's going to happen on this date, December 21st, 2012. No, that no nah, nah, <laughs> not quite that exact of a science.
0: No, I mean, e- even that's even just, women on their cycles are not always sure exactly what day they're going to. Oh,
2: absolutely. So, absolutely. It's so,
0: like we never know for sure exactly what day we're going to give birth.
2: Exactly. And so when we look at the things that affect our cycles, we we learn to understand that approximately in this range of time, think something is going to happen. You know, whether it be a woman learning to depend that it's somewhere in the third week of the month, she's going to get her, her monthly burden, uh, whatever you want to call it. um, Or for a neighborhood to rise and fall and then renew again over whether it be 10 years or whether it be 40 years depending on the neighborhood, and that changes from neighborhood to another. In the same way, the the Mayan calendar
0: and again, simply also, that also
2: recorded that. And again, that
0: also depends on, on whoever's in power at that time.
2: That's true. In that
0: city. So, you know, it kind of goes around the same type of thing that we have with...
2: Well, yes and no. And here's something that if we look at... There, there's actually some some fiction that talks about this in a general sense. Isaac Asimov created a series called the foundation series in which he talks about the mathematics of psychohistory which bears a lot of similarity to the study of complex systems in that there are things that happen in the universe whether on a on a on a grand macro scale or whether on on a personal micro scale but what psychohistory suggests and and that complex systems theory also seems to bear out in the studies that I've made and I am no scientist in that regard by any stretch but it seems to to bear similar points out in that generally speaking cycles happen as individuals there is very little we can do to change those cycles even a woman mm-hmm. with with her, her her monthly cycle or any man or woman with their biorhythm it's very difficult to try to change those rhythms.
1: Yeah.
2: There there are ways, if you affect enough aspects of your life, you can affect those cycles.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: But the number of variables that you have to address to do that is monumental. It's mm-hmm. it's celestial in size. And so your question about whether we can affect these or predict these, it just complex systems, theory, and psychohistory have borne out that We really can't. Are we slaves to them? No. Because the choices and things that we make, the the, the things that we do, do affect these cycles.
1: Right, they do.
2: When those choices that we make as individuals gather together into larger groups, cities, towns, nations, and when we as a nation or even broader as a species choose to be driven by consumerism such that we are polluting our world with the plastics and the pollution out of our cars, now we are either accelerating or decelerating this cycle or this cycle, and then those cycles are interacting to either accelerate or to exacerbate a cycle that is going to happen, whether we want it to or not. The great change of the 2012 range is something that I think we're going to experience whether we want to or not. But I think there's going to be a difference. We, we see a lot of apocalyptic uh, predictions and so forth. And of course, then we look back at the 2000 thing and that was more hype. And, and we look at the the end of the world scenarios that have come along for hundreds of years. You know, um, while the words change, while the reasoning for their scenario changes um the universe is a big thing and i really don't think we're going to change it a whole lot and you know, we are such a small part of that universe that these cycles are already in play and unless we are god we are not likely to change them and and personally i think that god kind of likes things the way they are <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure that he's willing to consider changing the entire recipe after he's put it in the oven.
0: Well, no. Things don't the work that way. That he, he's, let it, he's let it bake on his own.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Because that's what free will is all about, but we'll, exactly. get, we'll get into
2: that. So, but anyway, <laughs> as it applies to space, I think that our move into space is important for several reasons. The apocalyptic level of the cycle convergence that we're going to experience as we move into 2012, 2013, and beyond is going to be huge we're already seeing signs of this in econ economics mm-hmm. we're seeing it in politics we're seeing it in in the mix of those two in the debt load that nations have been carrying okay. for decades and the results of that in 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 a sudden increase in consequences of in this country massive foreclosures because people are losing their jobs because the stock market took a downturn because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac screwed up on the loans, yeah, and they kept trying to push things too far. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And, and,
2: and the hectic acceleration of our lives is another example of this. The frenetic sense that we've got to a, go faster, 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 it's faster. It's a
0: natural progression is what you're saying, too. Um, it, I mean, I look at it this way. It says if we were not meant to go out in space, then they wouldn't be there. <laughs>
2: That would be a very dreary place to live on this planet if there were no space.
0: Right. That would be Imagine, I mean, okay, if we really had no hope of actually expanding beyond our
2: border of this earth,
0: then why is it out there?
2: Exactly. Let's go back for a moment and let's talk about cycles for a moment. The wonderful thing about cycles is that they're always a renewal. Mm-hmm. The cycle renews at the end of its its change period. Every
0: city sees it. Every yeah.
2: city, every woman, yeah, when, yeah. when every man and woman and child experiences it in the, in the changing yeah, of their biorhythmic it's, it's cycle. A, it's
0: a natural part of every life. A
2: natural part. And so here's what I see happening as we move into this 2012 uh, Mayan calendar anniversary, so to speak. The last time this happened, Civilization exploded on the face of of world history. Uh, Egypt, China, um, and, and many cultures grew out of that. But we're looking at a worldwide civilization overall on the planet that has got to go somewhere. And I think that we are likely to see an explosion of frontiers here very soon that will not be limited to space will not be limited to orbit or the moon or Mars. But I think over the course of the next decade, we're going to see things happen that do two very, very opposing types of scenarios. One is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Things are going to become really hard for us. I mean, this is this is it is an apocalyptic time. Is it the potential for the destruction of our species? Well, there's always that potential. I mean, some guy could, some guy could short out a circuit in the in in some system somewhere and and trigger nuclear Armageddon for all we know. Yeah. We don't we don't know whether there are enough safeguards to prevent that. You know, or, or lightning strike. You know, and jitter some guy to push a button that he really shouldn't have buttoned. You know, I don't know. I, I could come <laughs> okay. up with all sorts of foolish a, scenarios.
0: I just had a very strange thought. Because they had Doubting Thomas from from the Bible, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, being a you know Judas, I wonder what title they would give it the guy who actually accidentally pushed the button and caused mm. great <laughs> destruction. Nobody will know. <laughs> Nobody will know his name. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Either a, he's going to be the last person left on Earth because he pushed the button,
0: <laughs> or somebody's going to shoot him because there's a... No, there? or uh,
2: he's he or he, or he will die in the first barrage.
0: Well, I don't know because I mean if he's, if he's if he's somewhere where he can actually do that, more likely he's in a facility that's probably pretty safe. Unfortunately, he probably would survive. imagine.
2: Right. <laughs> but here are some things that I think, and and given that my my focus of interest today is about space. Yeah. And about this principle of the mission zero scenario. In anything that we do as a species, there is, and, and as as we moved west in the United States, as they moved across the Atlantic in the in the in the uh, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundreds, as they moved outward from from um, the Bay in Australia to colonize Australia, um, we we find that that we have to plant seeds. And if we are going to expand into space, we need to plant seeds in fertile ground somewhere. And there are ways to do this. The, the pioneers of the American West, I, I must confess to, to a great deal of ignorance about Australia's development, but, and, and the colonization of, of Indonesia and things like this, but, but American I know a little bit about. And when they went across in wagons and hand carts and with backpacks and, and whatever it was they carried, it was it was with the idea of taking with them the necessities of life mm-hmm. now going into space or for that matter going into the ocean both are very perilous enterprises both require us to carry food air and water with us in the in the salt water of the ocean that's not drinkable right so your 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 two scenarios of sea and space are are very similar in their in their requirements the details uh, if you're going under the ocean, you're protecting yourself from the pressure of the water. If you're going into space, you're trying to retain pressure so the the physical characteristics and and many of the formulas used for both of these enterprises are have similarities um, The differences however can be can be huge where in uh if you're going into the ocean, all you need to do is bleed out enough air so that you start to sink and you're going to go down there. If you're going into space, you've got to develop huge supplies of, of rocket fuel to get yourself off this planet. And in doing so, you've still got to carry food, air, and water for your humans to survive. Or maybe you're taking a few dogs or some chickens or, or fish. You know, there, there are all sorts of uh, things. And so the Mission Zero scenario revolves around the idea of establishing a, a frontier beachhead from which... You can generate the supplies that will facilitate movement from Earth orbit outward. We cannot, it's been said several times already, we cannot financially support the costs of subsidizing a space station from home Earth. Does not work. The money just isn't there. The minute you cross the orbital boundary, Earth can no longer support that 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 spaceship that that space station whatever it is it has to be supported from somewhere where the costs are far more reduced now the moon is an interesting place to start this mission scenario um, idea because we do know a few things that help us in that direction. we know that there that the lunar regolith contains components that we can use to uh, to a certain degree, create air, or at least generate air for our for our uh, frontier people, and two, to generate rocket fuel. Those are e- reasonably easily accessible with technology, and, and it doesn't have to be industrial-scale technology that we send up. They can extract these things with, uh, by comparison to our EarthBound group, low-tech solutions. You know, you carry a, a single microwave, you carry a, a few other hand tools, and, and you know, with, with ah, ah, here you go, take a beach bucket for a five-year-old and a little shovel, go out, shovel up some lunar regolith. take it back into the thing, pack it into a mold, and you can make a brick. Or you can take that stuff and, and do different other minor processes with the microwave or heating or freezing, and you can extract... Uh, whether chemically or or through um, uh, processes, you can extract oxygen, you can extract hydrogen, and generate um, some small amount of atmosphere. The challenge that we face is in scaling up those processes so that we can generate enough product to serve not only the lunar um, homestead, but also so that that can be transported up and serve a lunar outpost in orbit, and an Earth outpost in orbit. The Mission Zero scenario is about establishing that first homestead, or, in my proposal, first four homesteads. Those four homesteads are designed uh, in in four sets that begin with what I call beachhead.
0: That's good.
2: Beachhead is... Um, we get there, and their sole purpose is to survive. It is not to create products. It is not so. It's kind of like if
0: you're talking about Gilligan's Island. They were on the beach before they could actually uh, move inland. Move, in, move they, in. They
2: didn't have any bicycle wheels. They didn't right. have. They, they didn't they know did what. Temporary shelter. Temporary and shelter. And food
0: was their main course of, of the surviving on the beachhead.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, once you've established the beachhead, um, then you've got to, 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 as part of that beachhead, be it, just just having a temporary habitat on the surface of the moon is not going to give you a solid beachhead. You've got to, to in, in, in my proposal, you've got to literally dig in. All right? And doing that... Um, one of the things that I'm proposing is that we dig into the side of the crater. And there's several reasons for that proposal. Um, one of which is, is that, you know, there are, there are all sorts of hazards on the surface of the moon. And you are bound by whatever you can deliver to the surface of the moon to support the uh, astronauts that you place there. The traditional view from NASA and many space advocates is to drop a tin can on there, uh, even if it's inflatable, and ouch, um, live in that while you make progress. Right. But here's here are some qualifiers. In order to establish that. Um, Oh, in order to establish the aspect of being able to work and live in a habitat somewhere else, something from our old west that we need to embrace, that is the ability to expand that habitat in situ or actually on site. We need to be able to grow that habitat as the local materials allow us to. If we are dependent on shipping habitat modules from Earth, we've lost before we've begun. We've already... The sheer expense of setting these things up there just just doesn't work. So let let me just digress for just a moment and and describe in brief the four components of the Mission Zero. This will be from the book that will be coming out. The first, as I said, is beachhead. The team arrives with with food, air, water, seeds for planting, a collection of hand tools um, and materials to build a permanent habitat in the site in the crater wall um, that they land in and, and the reason I choose a crater wall has to do with the idea you've got all of the, that height of of compacted lunar surface between your habitat and the expanse of space, and you have only the opening. Of your habitat cave to seal and to maintain there is of course a certain amount of diffusion of your atmosphere once you pressurize it will go into the rock but that's going to have certain limits and you can seal that over time and make it airtight 100% so but the idea of that that becomes your beachhead where you're going to plant your plants Set up your 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 aquaponics, your fish, your your plants. And here's something else that that I've also proposed. In that first habitat, you're going to plant some very important important plant choices. One of which isn't going to be just isn't just limited to food crops, but also crops that can give you building supplies. Here's an example: bamboo. Yeah. Its very structure has been used in Asia for centuries to build homes, bridges. Um, they've even got multi-story structures built entirely out of bamboo. So the idea of taking an environment and building these things so that you can build a, a biome inside it, and once you have the biome, and if you're already underground, you can expand that environment a little bit at a time and make your biome bigger. One thing that we've learned on Earth is that life expands. If you can feed it enough of the the carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and other components that it can can support itself, which many of those are available on the surface of the moon and the regolith. So we can feed some of these elements. Now, carbon is not one of those that's plentiful, but that we can incur as we add more and more life into the environment. The second mission zero element is consolidation. When the second team arrives, they're going to follow the same mission objectives as Team 1, but with Team 1 to assist in increasing production so that they can begin looking to making exports, food, air, water, and ultimately rocket fuel. They're going to pursue a robotic exploration of their crater. They're going to install and debug um, some way of getting materials from the bottom of their crater up to the actual surface level uh, of the moon. Then you're going to be looking at increasing power production. You're going to be looking at mining for fuels. The third portion of Mission Zero is foundation. A third team arrives. You've got your third habitat, the farms, increases in production. Um, Then they're going to establish (coughs) um, rotations up to a lunar orbital station and begin testing export procedures and processes and preparations for the first return mission to Earth orbit. Your fourth portion of mission zero is economy and this is this is this is a real critical point um, they're going to begin exports to the i s s and hopefully to the private space stations that may be established by then from Earth you're going to begin imports of discarded materials and waste from the from these very space stations so that they don't end up throwing them away burning up in the atmosphere and then lastly um This idea of economy, this idea of creating economic benefit between Earth orbit and lunar space so that we can define products that can be used at less expense by having them shipped from the moon instead of from the surface of the Earth. Now, there will always be things that have to come up from Earth, Um, large amounts of, of processed metals. Uh, uh, industrial equipment as the Mission Zero migrates from Mission Zero into Mission One, which is the beginning uh, of setting up small industrialized tools, drill presses, small manufacturing lathes, things like this, that and a foundry, things that give us the ability to move forward. Um, once, Once the foundation of a livable, arable environment is established, then we have the ability to bring in the first stage of industrial equipment to begin processing and building small ships or the uh, lunar power stations or the uh, linear uh, accelerators, mass drivers that can start shipping larger and larger quantities of materials. When the railroad moved west, mm-hmm. they had their locomotive could only carry the supplies they needed to lay track. And a second ship or a second locomotive would bring in food and, and and supplies that they couldn't find in the environment they had. So in our Mission Zero scenario, we lay that foundation of livable, arable environments that let our frontiersmen work in shirt sleeves But most importantly, what this does in this mission zero scenario is it lets them have the flexibility to address the challenges that they face. These people don't go with very specific tasks that they spend two years learning how to do. They go with an understanding of farming. They go with an understanding of atmosphere. They go with an understanding of the mission specifics as far as getting there and setting up their habitat. They learn about their spacesuits. They they learn about their self-preservation issues, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to mission tasks, well, their mission tasks are to build a farm, to grow their construction equipment, and to stay alive. That's their mission tasks, so that the next team as part of Mission Zero can arrive, and then once they get that second crew, now they can begin growing the habitat.
0: You well, I used the the point of uh, Gilligan's Island for a reason. We're talking about growing your your materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had used bamboo a lot in that show.
1: Yes, they did. And, and vines.
0: Uh, and vines, and I think those are very well. You know, I, I don't think we would have vines on the moon, but
2: well, actually, why not? Why could you not grow we can, plants yeah. that would vine? That would well. Uh, you would have
0: to figure out how how to. You would Make choose your long. plants.
2: Yeah. Well, no, you wouldn't have to. One of the things that, that's interesting about the lunar environment is that there are aspects of it that we don't know what's going to happen. Right. Bamboo on Earth grows against gravity.
1: Right.
2: And and that gravity expects, uh, affects the growth of the bamboo itself. Without that level of gravity, assuming that your air quality, that your your light quality is is consistent with Earth and your environmental uh, so forth is all if everything being the same except gravity, the very first thing that we can presume or hypothesize is is that the lack or the reduction in gravity is going to affect the growth of these plants
0: well, you think so we did we're just not mm-hmm. sure we're
2: just not sure how it, it could, have been there long could make there. I mean the bamboo could shoot up and become so thin that it's no longer strong anymore right it could do that or it could grow at the same rate. But without the press of gravity, the density might not be as, as thick. And that could be an issue. So and, and whether these are true or not, they're, they're issues that the settlers on that surface will have to deal with. But the idea that I'm proposing is that you leave them free and unfettered from mission tasks to do this. Now, there is one thing I will say this.
0: I mean? What do you mean by unfettered? From
2: well, they won't have a list of things that they're supposed to answer to mission control.
0: I mean no payload issues.
2: No, no payload issues. issues. No no scientific experiments that they're required to do. No they, wake they, up they calls. They are
0: the scientific. They experiment. are the experiment.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it gives. It, it, here's here's the thing. to Think about it. Gives a whole new meaning to the word of the human guinea pig.
0: Yeah yeah. You
2: know, I mean, they're yeah, rats they're in definitely. a maze. Rats. <laughs> and and. And, and and here here are two things. Number one, the frontiers that go, the frontier settlers that go to the moon, and later on that go to Mars, and the asteroids. These are one-way trips. These are things that we have to accept. That the first that's cruise that
0: goes,
2: Mission Zero is a one-way trip. It's survive or die. Yeah,
0: that when we
2: look at the West. The migration westward. Because people
0: did, knew they were not coming back. They
2: knew they weren't coming back. They didn't. A lot plan of them didn't even back. make
0: it to the west.
2: Do you know that the statistics from from that period showed that almost seventy five percent of them died on the way? Mm-hmm. The the sheer yeah. numbers of people who died in that effort yeah. to to tame that frontier enough that, that we could have tourists. Did it
0: and did it stop them? It did not. Did stop them?
2: And and there have they been some. They knew what the risk
0: was going in? They
2: knew what the risk was going in. And and the recent uh, experience by the scientists in Europe who said who proposed a one way trip to Mars and ended up with overnight four hundred or or some uh offers to go, knowing the risks.
0: Yeah, see? I mean
2: it, it it's it, always gonna it be just, There's always gonna be people. people
0: who need help, And this is their form of hope is is by you know, taking that big of a risk.
2: And, and here's the thing. For, yeah, for a large know. part of the migration from Europe to the New World, many of those people, well, a large majority of those were slaves.
0: Mm-hmm. But, they they um, had nothing else to lose.
2: Well, no, they weren't given a choice. They were sent,
0: Oh. period. Okay, okay, yeah, slaves were. Yeah,
2: they yeah. were taken from their homes and sent over. That's but also, Sorry, for those fine. who chose to migrate, mm-hmm. many of them had no other option. It was worked their way across the ocean, and when you landed, you landed with the coals on your back, and you had a chance to make it if you chose to do so.
0: And this was and how all of our our uh, ancestors had lived, and these are the risks that they had taken just getting us here to the Americas.
2: Exactly, and if and again, looking back in history, every great expansion, every great migration, followed the same pattern. Mm-hmm. The the, the, the lower levels of society were pushed to make the decision to choose to go regardless of the risk, and this is what Mission Scenario is about. Mission Zero is about these people being the ones to spearhead the settlement of space and ultimately to be the business people for the next echelon of human expansion. Well, think
0: about it. Was it the Queen of England who, or Queen of Spain, sorry, who said, Oh, yeah, I want to go. She but didn't she, want to go. She didn't want to go. She already had a She wanted. Life. She, she wanted had... to
2: have the, she, she was after the gold.
0: Was she, she, was after yeah. the she was after the economic
2: benefit and right. products. Right. And that was fine. And that the big business the people are always, they, the, same they,
0: they always the same way. They always think the same way, where, hey, what are going to get out of it? Exactly. Uh, but then when we turned around and said, uh, No, this is our own country and we're doing our own thing. That's right. And, uh, and, and that will
2: happen, and, and there are all sorts of things that I'll be discussing in, in, in the book, and I've, I've started many of these things going. Uh, but one of the, one of the, I think the biggest, in, in addition to the idea that it's a one-way trip, there's an important difference in that the proposals that I make in the home in, in the Mission Zero scenario is it is not funded by the government. Not one penny comes from the government.
0: Right. So there's there's no. Uh, yeah, the
2: Things that are attached to that. There's, there's all of those strings that go with it. On the other hand, funding from private sources or from um, the various uh, economic opportunities in the in the planet today could be a very big boon. You asked earlier in our discussion if I thought yeah. the Mayan calendar conjunction coming up is going to um, give us an inkling of what's to come, and I, and I think that's true. When we look at human development, it is on the backs of the lower levels of society that we make the achievements we do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And at the same time, it is many of those very people from the lower levels of society who in the greatest challenges of time rise up and become the industrial giants of the period after. The immigrants of of the the the, this, the 18th, 17th, and 18th century became the tycoons and the industrial giants of the 1900s, and the immigrants of the 1900s became the tycoons. Look at Rockefeller yeah, yeah. and and all of these people came in as immigrants yeah. and made their way in the world and became the juggernauts that they have now. Bill Gates didn't graduate college. I, I don't. I, I believe Steve Jobs didn't either. And these are two of the greatest examples of people who found an itch. They were not rich people when they started out.
0: Well, perhaps it's what gave them the itch to do something.
2: Well, Steve Jobs and, and and Bill Gates, I think, had an idea that they were enamored with and they pursued that. It was their love. And, and when you do something they, you love They
0: still had the drive.
2: They, they had the drive.
0: Otherwise, they would have never gotten. They
2: would have never gotten. Them. Them. No. absolutely, and, and they would both. have both went and put burgers somewhere. Absolutely. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where would we be <laughs> As if the parent was kicking him out of the house? There you go. Instead of getting in the garage.
2: So, mission zero <laughs> scenario is a way for us, I think, in regards to the twenty twelve scenario, twenty twelve, great change. Mission zero is one way. Not the only way, but one way. We can jumpstart our economy by building uh, uh, support systems. We could use that. The space environment is one that could ramp up and build jobs very, very quickly. Most of the infrastructure is in place, just like it is for automotive. And there will be workers galore for this uh, to do labor-intensive portions of this manufacturing processes. And then lastly... Any time we move into a new frontier, there are huge markets that open up that we never dreamed of before. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of the benefit of orbital extreme sports. You've got surfing to the surface mm-hmm. from orbit. Very dangerous, but I'll bet it's a it's it's a it. thrill ride like no surfer's sure. ever had before. Sure. Um, You've got here's an idea. What if you take a take a a, a, a a jet ski, replace the the water motor in it with a with a, a rocket motor, stick it in orbit, and have uh, orbital jet ski races around slalom courses? I mean, uh, just the dynamics of doing that in a spacesuit could be challenging alone.
0: Uh, That's what you call an industrial
2: industrial business. A uh, what?
0: You're talking about the foundation of industrialized businesses.
2: Industrialized businesses to follow. Um, our society is based on entertainment.
0: Right. So and yet entertainment has about. to
2: build. A, a, racing is one of the fastest growing uh, sports. When you, when you inter, introduce a new sport, racing is one of the first things that people want to do with it. They want to yes, push yes, the I'm equipment saying, to the limits. There's
0: people who are taking risks even though they're making these cars safer for these people to drive.
2: They Racing builds technology rest. that gets transferred right. into automotive right. safety and so Same forth. Same thing
0: with that.
2: Absolutely, and and you know one of the one of the other things is I could see here's here's an oddball idea. What if they had these jet ski orbital racers, mm-hmm. and your challenge was to have a scavenger hunt and go collect as many errant dead satellites as you can. And so you've got a computer map in your jet ski, and you're going around the Earth at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, trying to capture a handful of satellites and bring them back. And what they do is they weigh it when you get back, and the winner with the most mass wins, and so he gets a small prize.
0: Get a tether, it's it's really a weird a,
2: kind of race, isn't it?
0: I would get a tether with a huge magnet at the end. <laughs> And just race right through that area. Well, do you know that they <laughs> See did? What I up. They
2: did a recent thing with a tether from the from the space station a while back, or I think it was the space shuttle, and they found that that there's a problem if you use a tether. The, the problem is, is that because you're moving through the Earth's magnetic field, uh-huh. oh. the field generates an electric current in the tether. Oh wow! I mean, nothing like sitting there riding on your little super, your orbital jet ski, rocket ski, and all of a sudden you're getting bitten the us. By these electrical charges coming through your tether. <laughs> and there's a story there. There's a humorous short story there, I can imagine. Yeah. But.
0: You know where my mind's at. And then again, there are people who
2: would do that on purpose just to get their jollies. So, I mean. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And of course, sex cells, and there will always be people looking for new ways to experience the pleasures of the body. And that's a subject I'm gonna stop right there on.
0: <laughs> the a whole show on his own.
2: <laughs> but, but again, the great change. Space exploration and undersea exploration, both of them share many attributes that we really should be pushing outward on. But neither one is gonna do us any good without a mission zero scenario. Thanks for the time, Patty. <laughs>
0: When I tell you it's almost time, it doesn't mean, like, cut it off right there. Well,
2: (laughs) Mission Zero, I believe, and granted, it it is my idea, but I I think that Mission Zero scenario is the only way we're going to get over our incessant desire to get to space Mm
1: -hmm. without
2: the qualifications of having to have the government teat there for us to draw funds and, and everything off of.
1: Right, right. right. It's We're not, not going anymore. to expand.
2: The government doesn't expand. A government grows big and fat like a sow, but it doesn't make any progress. You, then you butcher it and you eat it. Yeah, well,
0: that's an interesting process. I've seen, some, kind of I've
2: seen some politicians big enough to fit the bill.
0: <laughs> some politicians, mean, what eating? And kilos? they're full
2: of all sorts of pork. <laughs>
0: all sorts of pork. So,
2: but Mission Zero, the 2012 scenario represents an opportunity for us to explode on the scene of space in a frontier thing. Um,
0: I want to hear about this new book you have coming up. Which one? (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I got it. Okay. We were talking about space, okay? So we're talking about your space but not your fiction.
2: Homesteading Space, the Mission Zero Scenario, looks at how we can take uh, the pamphlet I wrote last summer the 12 steps to, to booklet,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, the booklet, um, this one expands on the principles of the booklet and goes into detail on not only does it talk about the process, the, the funding, the, uh, the merchandising, the media campaigns, the, the way to bring people together, what would they be trained in, how would it go, what, what the launches would be, what equipment would you take, and, and it goes into a great deal of detail into, into many of the things that we might um, assume would be there, but aren't, you well, know. I
0: remember I asked you about that, uh, why you're going in such detail, and is it because you need to know the how big of a ship that you're <laughs> in order to be able to get there?
2: Well, here's the how thing. How much what,
0: payload you can take in that ship? Well,
2: at one time, I was entertaining the thought of carrying a big little habitat and, and a whole bunch of cargo and all this kind of stuff. And. And I, I came across a spreadsheet that allowed me to calculate the mass requirements, the fuel requirements. And I was up to a point where I'm, I'm taking 100. I, I'd have to put 150 tons of rocket fuel up there just to get it out of orbit. <laughs> and I'm thinking, we don't have a ship big enough to send half that much up. Yeah, so and so I had, I had to really, again, insider. I really had to a downsize. realistic. Absolutely. So
0: what you're and, trying to do is really give us a realistic uh this Plan is, of action,
2: and this is very very comparable to the Conestoga wagons that the the pioneers took across the American West. Okay. It's the absolute minimum in food, tools, survival gear, mm-hmm. and and the steps to get them into the point where they're ready to to export something. Okay. Whatever that something is, will have to be determined. By them, not by the scientists on Earth, because we cannot estimate in any reliable sense what stage they will be at in the first week, the first month, the first year. Only the people who are on the ground will be able to do that. And in any military endeavor, that has always been the case. You have goals that you seek to achieve. Beachhead, consolidation, foundation, and lastly, economy.
0: Well, I like your the cover idea in that you've got a uh, covered wagon with a rocket, rockets attached to it as your homesteading idea, and uh, oh, sure. the moon or bus.
2: Absolutely, it is it is a moon or bust approach.
0: We did discuss a little bit on on the Mars issue, and that the reason why you're thinking is you need to get to the moon first and then to Mars.
2: Correct? The economics of trying to send a Mars ship are. Are orders of magnitude greater than sending a moon ship. Right. And the lessons, well, here's the thing the lessons to to be learned on the lunar surface in low gravity
0: will will give
2: us a lot more foundation for preparing for the radiation rich environment of space between here and Mars and also for. The opportunities that await us on the Martian surface with a high carbon dioxide atmosphere.
0: Also, we would have an economic system already in place for the Moon.
2: Exactly. To
0: allow us to be able to go to Mars and be able to establish something there. Exactly, okay.
2: and and with with a fuel production plant and metals and, and an industrial foundation on the lunar surface, we can then build the Mars launch point at uh, any one of the lunar Lagrange points. Mm-hmm. And one of the favorites is, is L1, because it sits between Earth and Mars, and then they can use the the Earth gravity well as a yeah. as a slingshot to get out to Mars. So there's there's a lot of good reasons for doing that. Lifting a lot of stuff off of Earth to get to to L1 is a piece of cake con- compared to the carrying a 150 pound pack up Mount Everest to get to lunar to Earth orbit.
0: And there very few people have done that.
2: And very few people have done that. <laughs> I think we've had. Uh, 12 astronauts, I think, is the number right in that range uh, have actually been to the moon, and uh, what, about 100 or so have actually been to Earth orbit?
0: Right. well, I was talking more about uh, up to... Oh, Everest? Everest.
2: Oh, yeah. There's... Yeah. Uh, There there are
0: some, and there's some hardy people, and see, actually, these people probably could go to the moon.
2: They very well could. Because
0: they already understand that the, the limited amount of Air up there, exactly, and the elements itself. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about it. These people—they're people who actually go up Everest. Yep. To prove that they can. hmm And these are the people who we will the see.
2: The classic answer for Everest is, "Why did you go?" And the answer is because it's there. It's there, and, and the moon it's and there. Mars. It's there. And orbit because it's there. Because it's the second star to the right. Because we can.
0: And it's on. It's on the way to Mars.
2: No. No. It's not on the way to Mars. Well, it's. It's on the way out. to the second star to the right. <laughs> okay. Our goal is not just to get to <laughs> the moon. It's yeah. not just, just to get, get to, to Mars. Mars. Get to We're headed beyond. for the asteroids. Right. We want to hit the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Right. We want to get out and find out: is is Pluto really a planet or not? Well, that that, would be the, <laughs> that
0: turns out. We go there. And we can. We can say okay.
2: Yeah, it is kind of small.
0: <laughs> it's kinda of small, but you know, a few people can live here. So therefore the planet. Yeah. yeah. So we can go there and improve it. Yeah.
2: And of course the second star to the right, uh, Alpha Centauri is one example that's been trotted out for the years. The
0: idea is that, that we want to be out there. We want to go beyond our borders. We want to expand as as humans have always expanded.
2: And I truly believe that sometime we will find life out there, including
0: well, with that, I'm going to, to uh, say thanks, Tom, for coming on. And as always, we had two hours of intense conversation here. <laughs> and uh, really, we're looking forward to your upcoming book. And that's going to be titled what?
2: That is Homesteading the Moon, um, Mission, Homesteading Space, Mission Zero Scenario. There you go.
0: Also, if it's for anybody that doesn't know, you can still get his, get his uh, booklet for $2.99 directly from the publisher with free, with free shipping. Sorry, free shipping. And that is azpublishingservices.com slash capital B-O-O-K, obviously bookstore.php, or just go azpublishingservices.com and find the button on there for bookstore and scroll down to homesteading space. So I got a couple other books I want to talk about before uh, we go off, of, off air here in a minute. We've got uh, Don's uh, recent fiction book that I have been looking forward to for four years. Uh, it's called The Handyman, and it is a, a romantic suspense. And the information in the back is that uh, Gil has been a handyman of Oak for several years now, for the tenants, he is indispensable. For the women, he is irreplaceable. Knife fights for his life in the hospital while the detectives tried to sort out the circumstances of the car accident that landed him there. Daedra fell in love with their handyman, but when she was brutally attacked last year, they grew apart. Now another woman has been attacked the same way, and Daedra could become a target again. Detective Joe lost his wife last year just as Joker suffered a brutal attack on a tenant. He lost his focus and the killer disappeared. But now the killer is back and Joe is determined to get him. Secrets are revealed by the women standing vigil at Gil's hospital bedside as each of their own reasons for caring for this man. With a lady killer on the the loose, the handyman, must do more than just clean their drains. He must save their lives. And with that, I'm going to sign off because we are now at the end of our, our show. Thank you very much for listening. And again, this will be on our uh, guide, so you can listen to it anytime at your leisure. And with that, have a pleasant Saturday. And this is k y Radio and Patty Hall signing off for the day.